Hello, welcome to Wellbeings. Today we have a great episode. I have with me Dr. Buffy Lloyd Kretschy. Uh, she's one of the foremost authorities on infection prevention and control in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. She's a frequent contributor and interview source for national and trade press concerning infection prevention and control and mitigation. She recently authored a book titled Broken, How the Global Pandemic Uncovered a Nursing Home Industry in Need of Repair and the Heroic Staff Fighting for Change. We talk quite a bit about that book and we talk about infection control in the world of long-term care and what can be done not just at a macro level but also at a micro level. What we as consumers of long-term care can do to help mitigate infections in long-term care settings. So I think you'll enjoy Dr. Buffy as she goes by as much as I did. Enjoy. Welcome. How are you? Hey, Tyler. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It is entirely my pleasure. Hey, so let's um, let's start with perhaps a little biographical information. You know, the socially acceptable question upon meeting somebody for the first time is, hey, what do you do? It seems to be the thing that we ask. Uh, so when asked that question, how do you respond? Well, I let people know that I'm an epidemiologist and infection prevention and control specialist, and that I focus on the long-term care, healthcare setting, uh, primarily as my specialty. Wow. And how, how did you, that's a pretty niche field. Was that something that you, as a little girl, said, hey, when I grew up, <laughs> I want to be an epidemiologist in long-term care settings? Uh, no. no. In fact, <laughs> in fact, people ask me today, you know, how, how do you get, how do you get to do your job? And, and I, I don't really know that there's a complete straightforward path to my, my job. Um, it, it definitely, um, my path took a lot of different twists and turns and, um, it, you know, brought me to where I am today. I, I started when I was 17 years old working in uh, hospitals. I always knew I was always attracted to the medical field and I was always attracted to mathematics. Mm. And so my education is very much a mix of the, of the two. And I remember thinking, what in the heck am I going to do with mathematics and medicine? Um, and so this is, this is where it's led me is, is, is studying the, the prevention of infection um, of infections and, you know, a lot of data analytics with that, how they spread in populations and ultimately how we reduce infections and, and save lives. And that's, that's really my ultimate goal. Uh, that's that's interesting. I my my career path. I chose it. In fact, just the opposite of that. I I I thought to myself, how can I do as little math as possible? And, <laughs> and that led me to the law. And oddly enough, the area of law that I wound up in is almost entirely math. And so, my plan. Oh, wow. of, My plan kind of backfired on me. Um, yeah. So an epidemiologist, in, in in essence, then your 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 professional career, pre pre professional life is devoted to infection prevention in long-term care facilities. Is that a, yes. good, a good way of stating it? Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Can you can you give a little background um, of, of your your work in long-term care? Uh, specifically, that, that that's of particular interest to me because I, I my career is also in long-term care. 
Sure. Well, I didn't initially set out to work in long-term care and, you know, it's not quite as sexy as working in the hospital, working in ICUs and ERs and surgical rooms, you know, and that's originally where I was, I gravitated towards were those more high energy um, places where things are moving very fast. And, um, and it, it wasn't until uh, 2015, I started working for a, the CMS Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services Quality Improvement Organization, um, a QIO, Quinn QIO. And it, it, it really, I started working on analyzing healthcare associated infections. I started um, in the looking at the acute care uh, data, working on analyzing it, strategies for how to reduce these, these infections. When there was a project, a pilot project that came across my desk for um, to begin working with nursing homes, long-term care facilities to report an infectious disease called Clostridioides difficile infection or C. diff mm. into the CDC. And I was, I was captivated by this project and especially as I got deeper into it, learning that there, the nursing homes were not required to report their healthcare associated infections similar to the hospitals. And, and then what really grabbed my attention and really has set me on the path is learning that, you know, there's one to three million infections estimated every year in this healthcare setting resulting in nearly 400,000 deaths every year. And it just, there wasn't this priority or huge focus. And I was like, what, why are we not doing more? Mm. And, and so this is, this is really where I, I took a, a pretty big turn and really have devoted ever since then all my energy, my time, my focus into changing this this um, narrative like how how can we begin to reduce these infections um and that's kind of that's where it started that's where the journey started within the long-term care wow i can i can i can see why that would be a pivotal turning point for you there were a couple of things that you said that i kind of want to focus in on a little bit you mentioned that long-term care settings aren't required to report to the same extent as hospitals do. Can you flesh that out a little bit? But uh, I'm just curious as to why long-term care settings have a different reporting mechanisms and requirements. Yeah, there's, they're, they're, they're very different. And so, and even for hospitals, it wasn't until around 2013, 2011, 2013, that they were mandated to report their healthcare associated infections into the CDC, which is the gold standard for the surveillance for reporting. And so NHSN is the, is the database and it's, um, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's not, it's been just barely over a decade that it's really been in, in existence as far as reporting. And so the, the CMS pretty much tied a lot of like reimbursements and um, financial incentives to the hospitals to reduce their infections. And, and really the way to identify how many infections we have, we have to measure it, right? And so this is what the hospitals have been required to do. It's tied to reimbursements, like I said. 
and the long-term care facilities have just not caught up to that. The, the pilot pro project that I was talking about that began, it actually the, it started in 2016. That was really a, a, a launch for the nursing homes to start reporting their healthcare associated infections. And, and we picked one, we picked a multi-drug resistant organism, C. diff, which is highly infectious, especially in this healthcare setting. And this is, you know, we, we picked one, we, we had a, a four, we had 15% of the nation's long-term care facilities starting to report this infection, but it wasn't required. It was voluntary. And so the industry just hasn't caught up, you know, and, and we were slowly starting to make these changes before the pandemic. And then, of course, since the pandemic hit, you know, that's all changed everything. Mm -hmm. But um, the industry was definitely heading in that direction. Wow. This is um, this is actually resonating with me quite a bit. Just a, a little personal story. I it's been 15 years or so now um, that I broke my neck. Uh, in, a, in an automobile accident and I had to wear a halo brace uh, which is an ungodly contraption that kind of screws into your skull you know what it is I'm sure mm. you know it screws into your skull and then it straps to your chest so you can't you can't turn your neck you know allows your neck to to heal it's essentially a cast for a neck but because it's screwed into my it was screwed into my skull it was uh, you know it was prone to infections because I had you know mm -hmm. foreign substance or foreign objects penetrating mm -hmm. my skull well you know uh, lo and behold I I did I did uh, contract uh, MRSA while in the hospital mm -hmm. getting that you know, that uh, worked on and and it popped up in my hand of, you know, it kind of traveled through my blood and you know more about this than I do, but it, mm. somehow it popped up in my hand and my hand was, it was not looking like a hand anymore. It was awful. Right. Right. And yeah. the solution was, well, we're going to cut off your arm at the elbow because it's just too far gone. And so when they, when I went, uh, fell asleep from the general anesthesia, I, I, my last thought was, well, I'm going to wake up without an arm. Life's going to be quite a bit different. And um, you can't see me right now. We're, we're talking on Zoom without video. But I do have two hands. I have, they, <laughs> I, they decided, one of the surgeons, by the grace of God, decided, hey, you know what? We're going to cut it off anyways. Might as well see if we can pull this stuff out. Right. And they did. Wow. I, I, you know, instead of being an hour under anesthesia and waking up with no arm, I was... I don't know, a good 24 hours plus. I had multiple procedures done while I was asleep and I woke up with a hand and it's fully functional now. Um, wow. But um, boy, it would have been, it would have been nice to um, deal with that maybe a little bit more proactively as opposed to, you know, the reaction is cut the arm off, but the proaction right. would have been, okay, how do we mitigate the, the MRSA in this setting before people contract it. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, and that's, that's really my whole mission. And that's everything I fight for is the prevention piece. You know, uh, we, a lot of times you'll hear, you know, us throwing around term infection control, infection control, but I always want to make sure I add infection prevention because I want to prevent the infection from happening in the first place. And, you know, it's interesting because I do all this data analytics um, and you know, the, the answers lie in the data, but 
the solutions, <laughs> like they are very basic. You know, we're talking basic hand washing, basic environmental cleaning, basic uh, wearing of personal protective equipment. And it's, it's those basic practices that can go so far. And especially, I mean, hospitals still have their work cut out for them too. I mean, any infection preventionist will tell you like, same, you know, same thing is a lot of work, but in long-term care, when I, I'll, I'll just back up a little bit. When I, I, I launched, I decided there, that there wasn't enough work being done. And so I decided to launch my own company to really focus on this hundred percent because in my, in my job, I was kind of pulled into other areas of focus and, and whatnot. I really wanted to, to devote myself 100% to, to this work. And I was very ambitious and, and thought, I'm going to enroll all the nursing homes into the CDC and we're going to report our data and we're going to be able to understand the true burden of infections. And, and then we can really make, we can really do some good work and, and, you know, work on reducing these infections. And I was so naive and, you know, I went out there, I started doing a lot of on-site assessments and um, I real, I, I had a reality check and it was, Oh my God, I just need you guys to wash your hands. Let's start there. You know, like <laughs> I was, I was expecting, let's get you enrolled into the CDC and start reporting data. And, and, and I quickly realized like, no, we got to go back to step one and we got to do some hand hygiene and we got to clean these rooms in a way that they're not cross contaminating. And, and, um, and so we're really in a lot of ways and very basic, basic practices that can can do a lot of good, but we really need to focus on those basic practices. No, it's fascinating how sometimes the solutions are just so simple, but people, yeah. people are looking for complexity. They think that it's a big problem that needs a big solution. Well, yeah. it needs a widespread, simple solution, but not necessarily a complex one. And, and it's astounding that the folks in, I don't mean to come off as derogatory, but it's astounding that folks in the medical profession need training on hand washing. It seems uh, maybe, maybe it's because I'm, I'm not one who's inclined who, or who was ever inclined to work in the medical profession. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't even like my own bodily fluids, much less other people's. <laughs> uh, so for me, I would have no problem washing my hands you know, fully, but maybe you get accustomed to it and I, you know, overlook it. I don't know. Um, are there, are there infections that are unique to long-term care facilities that you wouldn't see in your typical acute care setting? We, we typically see the same ones. However, in long-term care, we see com we see other common ones. Like we'll see um, more skin and soft tissue infections, which, you know, you had as well, you know, with MRSA. Um, we'll see more pneumonia cases. Um, some of those GI cases like the C. diff I was talking about. The, the big concern is with the multi-drug resistant organisms or MDROs um, that are resistant to antibiotics. And so we call them superbugs. And those are what's really alarming the industry. And, you know, CDC has been working on antibiotic stewardship and, and really trying to raise the awareness for a long time around inappropriate use of antibiotics because they're not working on some of these organisms and they can be common in long-term care. You're in a communal setting. Um, you know, you're basically 
living, you're living there. And so uh, easier to transmit. So we have to, we have certain, um, if we do have some different protocols. So for example, if you have MRSA or one of these MDROs in a hospital, you're going to be restricted to your room um, in, in most situations where in the long-term care, well, if they live there, we can't restrict them to their rooms forever, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we have to have some modified processes so that the individual can live in a somewhat normal manner and not transmit that to other residents as well. So um, the long-term care setting is quite unique in the fact that the residents do live there most, you know, if they're long-term. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of our practices, and that, that goes against some of the infection control practices too, like even having hand sanitizing dispensers, you know, we're trying to create this home-like environment and not an institutional-like environment. And so that's, you know, if you've got hand, dis hand, hand hygiene dispensers everywhere, it looks more institutional. So those are some of the challenges um, of, for actually preventing infections within this healthcare setting. Yeah. So many of the same concerns, but the protocol for dealing with those concerns mm -hmm. is, is a little bit different just based on the, the context, right? Uh, yeah. And, and just real quick, you know, in hospitals now, there's pretty much private rooms, right, for of your patient stay, whereas in long term care, we still are very much sharing a room with a roommate. Um, some I'm starting to see some facilities really shifting to private rooms. And that's definitely would be a great goal to get to. But right now, you know, you still have a roommate. So there's the risk of spreading that infection to the other person as well yeah and that's that's basic um you know cost benefit analysis from sure from the owners of these of the facilities you know you, do i want to have twice as many residents or 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 not um i you're, you're the good person to ask this question too because i, I heard something that intrigued me but um, I, I don't know the validity of it, but you would, given your, your background. So this, this was, um, I heard this in the context of COVID, um, but I, I, I believe that it would be analogous to these MDROs of which you speak. Um, and, and so the, I suppose the analogy is, you know, as, as humans, we, we've evolved over time and we continue to evolve through natural selection to become better and stronger and, you know, propagate the, the better genes from one generation to the next. And the, it was explained to me that COVID um, and um, other viruses, they operate similarly, uh, but they have another concern. Um, their concern is that they have to, and I'm using the word they, I'm kind of humanizing it, but mm -hmm. I don't have a better word for it. Um, so, but they, their concern is if they get too strong, they kill the host. And so they have to find this balance. And, and I've se we've seen it with COVID is um, with, with every, in, every incarnation of, of, of COVID, it seems to affect more people, mm -hmm. but it seems to be uh, not quite as strong. So it's kind of finding that sweet spot where it can be broadly, it can, it can broadly affect many people and, and, and therefore be bigger, um, but, but not 
not crossing that threshold, not getting too strong to kill the host. It needs to, it needs to find that, that sweet spot. Um, you, in your, in your discussion of MDROs, um, you, you talk about them, um, uh, changing over time. Um, and, and this is, I, I just kind of want to focus in on this. This is a result of, um, adaptations to, to the, the various medications out, out there. Is that, is that what's happening? Right. So, I mean, when we're talking about antibiotics, you know, it, I mean, this is very complex and we could, we could spend a lot of time on this, but that's why there's such a push for the appropriate use of antibiotics. And, and this is a real uphill battle. I mean, somebody could write a book and they do about just this because the, if, if, if you, if you take an antibiotic and you don't need it, then it, it creates this, it creates, um, the organisms can mutate and they become adapted to this, this medicine. They don't, they don't need it or, or it doesn't work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's too much of it in, in the it's in its population base too. So say you're overusing a particular antibiotic in an actual community, there can become resistance in that community uh, where it doesn't work. And so we track that. We look at the resistance patterns. We look at if the antibiotics are still working. There are, are certain communities where, Antibiot- there are certain antibiotics that don't work at all any at all period on certain organisms because they've just been overused and the organisms have adapted to where they don't work anymore. And so you, you're exactly right. Like um, I look at it as, is these microorganisms are doing exactly what we as humans are doing. They're trying to survive hmm. and they are adapting and mutating to, to do that. And and quite frankly, that it was, you know, when I really started looking at like microbiology was the class that really grabbed my attention in college. And it was like, just fascinated at the complexity of these organisms and their ability to survive and adapt and change and um, mutate. And and so it's, 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 that's complex and it's baffling to me. And, and they're so strong in the way that they, they do um, change and, so it's, I mean, they can, they can, you know, take just one piece of, of the, um, the RNA from another organism and then modify it. I mean, it's just it's very fascinating how, how they, they do adapt to survive. So I have a high respect <laughs> for, for these organisms. And, um, and, and the hardest part, Tyler, is that we can't see them right? Like we can't see the action before it's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's the hardest part with my job. We don't see, we see the effect of them. We see the consequences, but we can't see them with the naked eye. And so we, like, we can, we can see if a resident is going to fall or we can see, you know, we can see with, you know, kind of foresee things, try to prevent, but, but that's the hardest part about my job is we can't see the germs. And so it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. And, you know, you don't even think you're maybe spreading them. So that's, that is a challenge for sure. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. So if I understood you correctly, um, let's say in Cincinnati, they overprescribe Keflex and in, Port- mm-hmm. in Portland, they don't. So if I understand you correctly, the Keflex might be 
effective in Portland where they're not using mm-hmm. it, but ineffective in Cincinnati where it's been overprescribed. Right. Wow. Exactly. And it can even be that way. So when we, when we work with um, different healthcare, so like if I'm working with a nursing home, I would, you know, I'm antibiotic stewardship and we would look at what's called an antibiogram, which is, it looks at the resistance patterns um, of these organisms. So we'll get this data sheet of all the antibiotics that were prescribed. And basically if there's still susceptibility level, meaning they're still working. So let's say they have their have a susceptibility level of 90%. That means that 90% of the time they're working. And then we'll also have the resistance level showing, Hey, they're not working anymore. So even in a community within a, you know, like surrounding an area with a hospital, maybe different nursing homes, we can see what's, what's changing even in a, in a community within the communities. So, and these are, this is, this is an area where there is not nearly the amount of focus on and, and we really need to, it's part of a good infection prevention and control program. But like, I mean, it's almost, you know, we're talking the same as I was like, let's get your data. I mean, our long-term care facilities are just not there yet. And um, and we have a long way to go, but it's very, very important that we work on this and, and we keep our attention on it. And some facilities are doing a really great job. I just met one, um, not too long ago in Minnesota that had a really robust antibiotic stewardship program. And they're working very actively with their pharmacists and with, you know, other community members, but, um, it, it definitely is something that we have to keep our eye on and work, work on. Yeah. Could, 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 uh, I, I'm just, I, I have no background in this, but could it, could a solution or at least a contributing something to contribute to a solution, just kind of rotate through the, the antibiotics that are prescribed in a particular skilled nursing facility? Well, one way that we can start to not, not quite because certain antibiotics are designed for just certain organisms, but what we, what a solution is, is to stop over prescribing when they're not necessary. And so there are, and this is, this is where the uphill battle is because um, there's such a culture Mm -hmm. of you don't feel well, give me an antibiotic. And so there's a culture from the physicians there. Many of them are, this is the way they were taught. This is the way they were educated. Mm -hmm. And then there's a culture in our communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a actual like timeline of when antibiotics started to become resistant with penicillin starting. And it was almost, and I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but you'll, you see the resistance happening almost right as antibiotics were put into the communities, the resistance started. And so it's similar to what we were just talking about. The organisms started shifting and changing um, just as soon as the treatment to kill them came on board. Um, But, but if we use them appropriately and we um, prescribe them appropriately based on surveillance, based on criteria that based on clinical indicators then we can drastically reduce the resistance in our communities. And, you know, not to get too deep into it, but we talked about C. diff, the infectious disease that I had worked on in these nursing homes, a main contributor of getting, of not COVID, (laughs) getting C. diff is the overuse of antibiotics. And so your gut is, 
actually develop C. diff as the result of powerful antibiotics. And then once you get C. diff, the reoccurrent, it causes um, major diarrhea, it can cause death, actually. But um, so if we scale back, especially in long term care, we we I work with a physician, Dr. Peter Patterson, and he is um, he's rolled out a program in, in long term care facilities that once they start to appropriately prescribe the antibiotics, they immediately immediately see a decrease in C. diff in their facilities. Like it, it's a complete correlation. Wow. And so we can reduce other infections by reducing the inappropriate use of antibiotics. And, you know, antibiotic stewardship is kind of the term we use. Antibiotic stewardship is not, is not to say we don't use them. We need them. We want them. And we just want them to be we want them to work in 10 years and 20 years, right? We want them available um, so that we have them to, 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 for, um, to be able to, to heal us just like you did. I'm sure you had some very powerful antibiotics on board mm -hmm. to help your, to heal your, your arm of MRSA. Mm -hmm. Wow. It, it's, it's, I was just kind of thinking of the history of, of medicine, what little I know about it. And, you know, you, you talked about one of the challenges being that you can't, I, you can't see germs mm -hmm. with the naked eye. And, um, and I just think back to when germ theory, you know, germ theory was introduced as a theory, you know, but I mean, prior to that, you know, it was people need, they had, they needed to get leached or it was a it mm -hmm. was spirits mm -hmm. or, you know, all the stuff mm -hmm. that happened. Mm -hmm. back mm -hmm. when, right. Penicillin was introduced and I'm sure right. it was seen as the wonder drug that it was. And, and then, right. and then the solution becomes a problem in its own right. And now I get on my telemed and, you know, there's a big disclaimer and you'll be happy to hear this, but there's a big disclaimer that says we are very cautious with antibiotics, mm -hmm. basically saying don't expect to call and get antibiotics. And I think that that in large part is because, like you mentioned, there is a culture or an idea that antibiotics will help everything and, it, and it's and it's right. because i and i'm just i'm drawing a lot of conclusions and making assumptions but doctors got into the profession of medicine because they want to help people and and you know if you give somebody a pill that's going to make them feel better then you're helping them and it's easy and you not I mean not easy but it's it's a lot easier than looking at, at the holistic body. It's let's just treat this symptom. And, you know, I grew up hearing that antibiotics are the thing to the thing that you need. And just the other day, my wife was um, suffering a, a cold and she said, I, just, I need a Z-Pack or something. And, uh -huh. and, 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 you know, that's just the, because doctors have given her Z-Packs in the past. And so I, right. I wonder, and Z-Packs, I think are pretty strong. Um, antibiotics but so i wonder when is when do we know we need antibiotics and when is it just uh, a bad idea is there a threshold yeah i mean there there are different there are different algorithms that physicians can use um should use and there's clinical indicators you know we don't treat a virus with an antibiotic we treat a bacteria we treat bacteria with mm -hmm. antibiotic mm -hmm. um and so if it's a virus, then it's not, it's not going to help. And if it's a cold, you know, just like your wife had, um, you know, there's other medicine in the Z pack that can help the person feel better. And so it's not necessarily the antibiotic in that, that is, 
is healing. You know, it just some of that takes time as well. So as an industry, we've definitely gotten better at looking at the criteria for prescribing antibiotics and um, definitely making headway on that. You know, I, I too, I used to um, get different like um, bronchitis, which was a virus, but my physician growing up always gave me an antibiotic as well. And then we learned like, oh, it, it, I wasn't bacterial was viral. So, you know, whether or not it helped, I don't know. But so it, it's definitely an area that we're constantly educating our physicians on. And um, it is getting better, but we still have a lot of resistance, you know, um, in the communities. And I always, you know, and in, in, in our long term care facilities, I, I tell the infection preventionists that are working on this, it's like, we have to show the data. So we need to show because for example, if if a resident has maybe a fever or has some signs and symptoms, and then the first thing we do is put them on an antibiotic. Well, what we need to do is what's called an antibiotic timeout. Whereas in we send in a culture and, you know, in 72 hours, like what did the culture come back as? Or did they actually have a bacterial infection? Hmm. If not, we need to take them off the antibiotic. Hmm. Whereas before we just leave them on it and just let them use, you know, write out the antibiotic, like thinking no harm, but it does. So we have these different practices in place that we can implement, but the IPs that that I work with tell me like the physicians are their biggest, you know, obstacle, like Mm -hmm. convincing them, like it's not appropriate. And so I say, we have to show them the data. So that's where we have to collect the data, collect who's on an antibiotic. Was it appropriate based on criteria? Was it not? Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to use the data to guide our decisions. Yeah. And it's kind of a, it's, I, I can only imagine it, what a tough obstacle that is to overcome. It's kind of a self-reinforcing downward spiral. Doctors want to give a quick solution. They're overbooked and, you know, they prescribe the antibiotic. The patient feels like, okay, good. I'll take this and I'll feel better in a few days. Mm-hmm. They're probably going to feel better in a few days anyways. And now they've taken a course of antibiotics mm-hmm. unnecessarily. There are there are a few things that happen uh, in in the world in politics or in the world of medicine or of big events where it's kind of like a before and after. I mean, I wasn't around for JFK, but a lot of people describe that as a before and then after or nine eleven. You know, there's pre nine eleven and post nine eleven. It's almost like the whole world changes. COVID certainly is one of those events. How has your involvement with long-term care settings evolved during the pandemic? Well, you know, before the pandemic, it was, you know, I was working very diligently trying to create awareness with the long-term care facilities on how to reduce the spread of the infections in their facilities. Um, At that time, probably the number one response I got was, oh, we're good. We, we have a good program. We're not getting tags from the surveyors and, you know, we don't, we don't need help. And I, and I knew I was like, no, I know you really do. But so for the most part, um, I was, I was turned away a lot and it was frustrating because I knew the problem. And so then of course COVID hit and then it was, it was just, it was just the nightmare that happened for the, the long-term care facilities. I think we really saw what I, what I had seen before and the lack of preparation. And then of course it was exposed to the whole world, you know, as far as the, how underprepared they were 
Um, and, you know, they, they were the long-term care facilities had been working on these, um, had been working on it slowly, like I indicated, but it was just all of a sudden they were thrown into the deep end without a life preserver. And it, it's been very, very devastating to the industry. Um, and we're still, we're, you know, we're still in the middle of it. We're still trying. I mean, I was just on a call Friday with the nursing home that had 40 um, cases of COVID, you know, and we're still in the middle of it and trying to battle this. Um, so it's, it's definitely been tough for the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. And this might be a good segue into talking about a book that you recently authored by the mm-hmm. name of Broken. Um, writing is a serious undertaking. Um, <laughs> it, it is a, it is a, it is a labor of love or it's just a, a labor. I've tried, I've, I've made my own attempts at writing a book and it's not easy. Um, but you did it and, and it's out there. You published it. Uh, yeah. what inspired you to, to write this, write this book? Well, I didn't intend to, um, I, was in the, you know, in the middle of helping the nursing homes, really, I was, I found myself in many different places working across the country. I worked with Doctors Without Borders. They had their first U.S. mission here um, in Detroit and Houston. And I would, I helped those missions and really spearheaded the, the development of the program. And I just found myself in so many different areas and hearing the same stories being told um, by the long-term care facilities and the pain that they were going through and the help that they needed. And to be honest, it just kind of started as a way for me to, it was sort of kind of like therapeutic as a way for me just to, to journal my feelings and journal what I was, you know, experiencing just to help me, you know, release some of the, that emotion. And I had a colleague who suggested I write a book about it just as a story that really needed to be told. And um, so I started writing it and, and almost right away, the book took a life of its own. I started interviewing uh, administrators, staff, academic researchers, um, even licensing divisions. And um, different advocacy groups, and I, I wanted to get the perspective from a different, from a wide variety of individuals and areas. And so the, the book really took a life of on its own. And I was just typing madly to get the story out, and it was really therapeutic, to be honest. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really proud to share the story from the people is really the way I look at it. And it's not just my experience, but it's the industry's experience um, and from the way, you know, of course, from my perspective, the way I saw it and the way they tell their stories. But I just, it's such a powerful story that I felt needed to be told because, you know, first of all, if you have a loved one in a long-term care facility, all you see on the news are the, you know, horrible things that happen in nursing homes. So that's not the true perspective. And, you know, and I just wanted people to know that yes, long-term care is very, very difficult and almost impossible to deliver the best care that we need based on the way that it's set up. And, um, 
so that's really what motivated me to share this story. I see. And in the title of the book, I, I, I believe I mentioned is broken. And presumably that's in reference to the oft uh, quoted or said um, broken healthcare system. Is that, is that where it comes from? No, it, you know, it was hard for me to come up with the title and, you know, the, the subtitle is how the global pandemic uncovered a nursing home system in need of repair and the heroic staff fighting for change. I, I wanted to emphasize the fact that this was not a book that's bashing long-term care. That's not, you know, it's, it's simply telling the story, but also highlighting our heroic staff that show up every day that, that are there dedicated to this work. And I wanted to, um, I dev definitely wanted to um, showcase the staff, but where the title came from is I kept saying the word, my heart is broken, the whole mm. system's broken. And I heard everybody else saying it. And it literally just hit me one day, like that was the name of the book, because it, it was the, the most common word <laughs> that I was using and that everybody was using. Um, it was difficult for me to come up with the title because the book is not just a book about what's broken. It's also a book about the solutions. So the last four chapters really dive into solutions, you know, solutions to, to create preventative care for infection, you know, preventive infection, prevention, <laughs> infection, and, um, you know, staffing ratios and just higher quality and, and the regulatory whole aspect of it. So it, it's a book I hope can help with advocating for change you know that's that's my motivation i'm not just here to tell a sad story i, I want to advocate for change and for improvement i love that so many times i read i read books where they do a great job of illustrating a problem a broken something or other only mm -hmm. to leave me you know, thinking wow that's too bad but with no course no recourse no path to mm -hmm. to improvements before we focus in on that, I, I just am curious, as you wrote your, as you wrote Broken, um, were your findings in line with what you thought they would be? Did you discover anything new as you poured over your, your journal entries and, and then mm -hmm. engaged in the interviewing? Did you, were there any new discoveries? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, some of it, a lot of it was validated and I was, Actually, I wrote in um, when I talked about the regulatory system, I had interviewed a prior um, bureau chief and, and a prior surveyor. And I wrote in my book, I was hoping I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that my it was just my perspective. And I was wrong that that, you know, and then when she confirmed it, and then it just so and then other people confirmed it. And I'm like, Oh, man, this is widespread. This isn't just my perspective. Um, the things I didn't anticipate to write about, I'm an infection preventionist, you know, like I this is my specialty. This is my world. I prevent infections. I prevent them from spreading. I am not an expert in economics. I'm not an expert in the regulatory. I'm not an expert in those areas. But I couldn't I learned very quickly, I couldn't write this book without talking about those areas because they are integral to how this healthcare system functions. And the reason that maybe our staff or our, our residents may end up with a uh, um, pressure ulcer or some type of infection is 
because they, the staffing ratios, because they have one nurse taking care of 20 residents. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I can't, that that's what can contribute to this. The lack of care is part of the staffing ratios. And, Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't, I couldn't separate them. You know, I had to talk about, I had to talk about these different areas. Um, I'd never intended to talk about the whole regulatory side of things, but it was so integral mm. to the experience of the nursing homes. And it was, it was such a, it is such a burden and such a um, system of bullying and punishment that is literally chasing people out of the industry that I had to talk about it, you know? And so I, I do, I did in, include those areas. Now, one area that I, I didn't write a lot about, but definitely is, is part of the problem is, you know, we have to have some um, accountability towards where some of this funding goes, because, you know, is it going into the, the corporate leaders at the top's pockets, or is it actually going into the frontline staff to do the job? So there's there's many many areas of long term care, and this book is is touches on on some of those. But I I really want the focus to be obviously on preventing infections, and that we can do a better job in it. And there there are solutions for that. Hmm. Yeah, it certainly is a a multidisciplinary problem with with broad reaching tentacles i mean you know just based on my interactions with uh, various facilities you have administrators extremely bright women and men running buildings but many of whom have no background in healthcare. you know their background is in business and and leadership and managing people um but the you know it's so that alone is going to lend itself to compounding the problem in some cases because the the focus might be the bottom line and and not um, right. not the proactive approaches. Um, you you mentioned you had four chapters devoted to solutions, and then you talked about a few different areas, a few different disciplines that that might might uh, lend themselves to improving uh, this problem. Um, let's talk about a few of these in terms of staffing. Um, how does, how does this play into it and, and what might we be able to, 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 to do here to, to help this problem? Yeah. Well, what's exciting for me actually, and, um, this is a time politically where, you know, president Biden had mentioned in the state of the union address about nursing home reform. There's, just so much action happening right now. And one of those main topics is staffing ratios and, and the call for better staffing ratios. Um, there, there, it's just, it's not sufficient the way it is. So you may have, like I said, one nurse caring for 20 residents or one, you know, with one CNA and the acuity level or how sick somebody is, is so much higher than what it used to be when these when these regulations were put into place, you know, 10 years ago, somebody who is in a skilled nursing facility now may have been in an ICU. And so we're caring for much sicker residents in in this post-acute healthcare setting. And so we need more nursing attention. We need more more people on the floor. We need more nursing assistants. I talk about that in um, the chapter about 
the care model and, and providing um, the care to the residents and how I talk about um, a young woman, Lacey, who was 24 years old and in a car accident and had to spend six weeks in a, in a nursing home. And, you know, because people say, oh, we're never going to have to go in a nursing home. And, and you don't know, <laughs> she needed rehab, you know, and she talks about how nobody would answer her call, like, you know, for two hours. And so it was just this absolute burden. Well, we need staff, right? We need, we need the help. If we don't, if we don't have the staff, then we, we can't care for the residents the way we need to. But that's a very complex, believe it or not, because again, if you put funding towards that, is the funding really going towards that frontline staff or is it getting siphoned up out of corporations? Um, we need um, better training. We, you know, so there it's, there's a lot that goes into it, but bottom line is we, we need more staff. And then, and, and how we do that is we, we make this a better healthcare setting to work in, you know, it's, it's um, hard, hard work. And if it's not an attractive career for somebody, why would you stay and do that? And so we can't simply say, yes, let's pass and get more staffing. We also have to work on um, the job and a career ladder and actually making it a sustainable career for somebody versus um, them wanting to get the hell out of there as quickly as possible, which is a lot of the attitude that we have. Mm -hmm. right now. Absolutely. So I've, I have spoken with many, many uh, nursing <sighs> facility administrators. I've, I've probably had a dozen, maybe two dozen on the, on, on well-beings and over the last year or two. Um, and, and particularly in the last six, six to 12 months, staffing has been their number one concern. Yes. Um, and, and, the solution, um, it seems to be two pronged, uh, one culture building, and that kind of lies on the administrators or the corporate, uh, the corporate mm -hmm. culture, you know, making it uh, more attractive to, 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 to work there. Um, and that's something that they have some locus of control over. Um, the, but then the other part, and this kind of segues into, into the next next point that you have that you raise um with with unemployment benefits being so high and wages being so low it has made sense for many people just to take the unemployment and get paid more for working less and so that kind of leads into maybe the regulatory reform what it uh speak to that for a moment what do you see as um problematic and potential potentially uh so potential solutions there for the actual regulatory reform yeah so i mean there's a lot of different categories with that but as far as like the payment model we've we've got to pay our staff better um like it just hands down there we we have to and you're exactly right i mean we definitely saw that when unemployment, the staff, a nursing aide could make more money on, on unemployment than on just her, their regular wages. And why wouldn't they, in all honesty, if they're putting their lives at risk and their family's lives at risk to go, you know, I mean, many people didn't do that. And, and I applaud them for that, but it just isn't balanced. It doesn't seem right. You know, like, okay, they should be able to make 
of, of good living and they don't. I mean, I talk about there's a high percentage of, of nursing aides that are on food stamps and medical um, assistance because, and, or they have to work two jobs because their employer only will work them part-time hours. So they don't get benefits. I mean, we've got to change that and, and really make this a, um, a career for them. There's in, in the reform, I mean, this, these are the calls to action right now to, to um, adjust wages, to adjust the amount of, of, residents per staff. Um, and these are, these are the definite call to actions right now for regulatory reform, along with, um, you know, other areas such as, um, you know, just survey and, and, and those, you know, survey reform and, um, assistance and, and calls for even higher reimbursements. You know, we talk about the economics of, of where we are right now. And, and yet the reimbursements are the same for each of the residents. So, you know, it needs an overhauling and why not now? Right. So, um, let's, let's look at it all and let's make it happen. Um, so, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And, and then the, the, uh, another area that we might be able to help and maybe we've already covered this, um, but just infection control in terms of proactivity um mm-hmm. you, you talked about basic things such as hand washing and the like is are are there is there more to it than that are there any other measures that can be taken widespreadly well right now the the requirement is for a uh, skilled nursing facility to have a part-time infection preventionist in place mm-hmm. and um unfortunately many facilities that is in paper only or that person is also sharing the role of the director of nurses or the assistant director of nurses um, or an educator, and, and they still do not have the time to devote to being an infection preventionist. And as a consequence, when you have, I mean, it truly is a full-time job and we really need to make it a full-time job for the, this, this healthcare setting so that true prevention can occur because right now it, there maybe have five to six hours a week. Um, not all. I mean, I definitely, I know California has mandated it that they have to have full-time IP, but it is, we need this dedicated trained staff and there's there, we need to support these new workers in this new role because it is a new role. And, um, and so they definitely need that support as well. And many, many, many infection preventionists that I work with are green. They're they're They walk in one day and they're told they get this job um, and they have no clue where to start. And it's a heavy, heavy job. And they, a lot of them quit very, very quickly afterwards because they're like, I'm just going to go work the floor. That's easier. I don't have the responsibility of this. <laughs> um, so we need to, we need to we need to grow. We need to foster the, that, um, that development of, of that career and really help, um, train and grow that the new workers for uh, infection preventionists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see how you had, uh, you had to broaden the aperture when writing this book because, 
the problems and the solutions seem to be so intertwined that you can't sure. really disentangle them. I mean, regulatory mm -hmm. reform, you know, if we, if we paid more, then we wouldn't have the same staffing problem. And if we didn't have the mm -hmm. same staffing problem, then we could dedicate somebody specifically and solely to an infection preventionist as opposed mm -hmm. to, hey, my director of nursing is also my infection preventionist. Right. Along those lines, is to become a, a, an infection preventionist, is there a certification process? I mean, how does one just say, my DON is going to be my infection preventionist? Well, right now, <clears throat> excuse me, right now there's a specialization that the um, the staff can take. It, there's a couple, there's a course through the CDC, it's 23 hours. There's also course through ACA, which is the Nursing Home Association, and also APIC, which is the National Infection Control Association. Um, and so once the, uh, the, it's typically a nurse in the long-term care. In fact, I, I don't really know that they've expanded it beyond that. Um, but they take this 23-hour course, and then, then they're an infection preventionist. Um, it's all online. And, and so it's a good foundation. Like I'm, I'm very, I'm supportive of it, but we need to go beyond that. And so in my book, I talk a lot about, we need mentoring, we need training, we need um, more in-person training. We need to really um, grow, you know, help them become more educated because it's, you know, it's, it's a whole career. And to say, oh, I take 23 hours and I have it. It's, it's, you know, it's not realistic. And so APIC is actually working on a certification for, um, to become board certified, the same as they do for the acute care, which is a great step forward. And it was funny because in my book, I actually talked about suggesting that and then just received notice over the last few weeks that they're working on that. So, um, that was good to see, um, yeah, that like they're going to start working right on hands. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's good because, you know, the board certification infection control, which I hold is based on more of the acute care side and it doesn't cover long-term care at all. So it's great that they're getting on board to create that board certification for long-term care too. And that'll really help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, many books are, um, I'd, I'd say academic in nature, um, you know, kind of high level, this is the problem. This is the macro problem. These are the macro solutions. And, you know, if you are just reading the book, it's, it sounds, yeah, this, this, these, are, these are problems and these are solutions, but not a lot that I can do about it. If I have a loved one in a nursing facility and I pick up your, your book and I read it, um, it, it, does it provide um, strategies for me as the consumer of long-term care? It does. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of technical terms. I, I really try to explain it in a way that somebody without medical or infection, uh, infectious disease training could understand it. Um, but it, it really does just what, what I hope for the consumer as they read this book is that they, they see the complexity, they see the need for reform and change and to stop blaming like our workers for everything. But also um, it describes the very last chapter actually describes to the consumer what they can do to get involved, how if they have a loved one, you know, because I describe a, a story of a mom who had her son 
in long-term care for 24 years and her journey with her son and what she did to get involved and how the consumer really needs to get involved. And, um, and so my hope is that the, the consumer, if you have a loved one in the, the nursing homes that you will, you know, start going to your family council meetings, make sure you're at the, the care plan meeting for your loved one. Um, you know, you can write to your legislators about the change that, that you hope for. And there's, you know, and I provide um, a link to my website for resources for the consumer. So they have um, like a checklist they can download if they, if they have a loved one in a nursing home or things they can write to their senators um, for reform and change. And so we, we provide a whole page, you know, like I said, on my website of resources to help guide the consumer in this process. Wonderful. I know that uh, if I had if I had a loved one in a skilled nursing facility, um, particularly over the last couple of years, I mean, there's I have so many clients. I mean, virtually all my clients are in skilled nursing mm-hmm. facilities, and it's just been so challenging to see family members, loved ones, husbands, wives, children not being able mm-hmm. to visit their their loved one. And they all, virtually all of them, want to do something or wanted to do something about it. And boy, what a what a powerful tool you've provided here to help people, empower people, give them actionable steps that they can take to really help protect those that they love the most. So mm-hmm. thank you for taking the time to do that. Um, and speaking of time, we are, I know your time is valuable and uh, we're, we're probably uh, uh, running, running out of it here. So um, I just have a, a couple other questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, you sure. are, you are in a profession, you've, you've chosen this path that um, ha- has allowed you to help many, many people. You're, you're in a, a helping profession. Um, you're giving of yourself and it has been said, and I have experienced it in my own life that you can't give away what you don't have. I'm not very helpful when I'm depleted. So on a personal level, what do you, Dr. Buffy do to take care of yourself (laughs) so that you can be the best Dr. Buffy you can be? Well, I love that Tyler. And as we do this podcast, I'm sitting in Maui. Um, (laughs) and, (laughs) and I'll be here for two weeks. I mean, it's not totally not, I mean, I'm doing a little work here, but, um, I'm actually running a marathon, which I know that sounds crazy, but Mm -hmm. I love to run and that's actually very therapeutic for me as well and helps to clear my mind. And, um, so I do take my vacations. I encourage people to take their vacations. Um, it's hard for me to pull away because I do care so much and I want, you know, I do pour myself into it, but it is really important for our own well-being and our health. And, and one thing I'll really say, especially to any healthcare professionals that, or anybody that's really worked in the front line of this pandemic, um, about a year ago, I, I, well, I took some time off last June, I took a month off. And as healthcare providers, it's really hard. I mean, I wasn't like, people weren't thrilled that I was going to take a month off, you know, like they want, they need your help, they want your help. Um, but I really had to, and I had my own kind of breaking moment. I, I worked with my therapist for, you know, a couple of times a week and, and on some trauma therapy, because what we've seen is traumatic. And, um, and needed to be processed. And so I, I, 
I really encourage, you know, people that have been in the middle of this to take care of their mental health and their, and their physical health. And to, to, because, um, you know, we, we can't, we're not superhuman, you know, and, and we have to get our, we do have to get help for what we've seen and, you know, the, the trauma that we've experienced. Um, and so I definitely, uh, encourage that. I, I, you know, I, I actually wanted to add more about that in my book, but, uh, I kind of ran out of time and I needed to really get it going, but I, I do really feel it's important that we focus on, um, our, our wellness, our mental health, our physical health, because, um, you know, we can only take so much before we break too. So, um, that's, definitely I've learned. And, you know, for me to share that openly is quite vulnerable, but I think it's important to be, I think it's important to share and hopefully it encourages people, um, that it's okay to step away and it's okay to take time to heal. And, um, because you deserve it, you know, like we're taking care of everybody else, like you said, and we need, we do need to take time to take care of ourselves as well. Yes. Yes. You and I are cut from a similar cloth when you mentioned some of the things that you do for self-care, for lack of better words. Yeah. I, I, I have to have a vacation on the calendar, something to, yeah. something to look forward to. I need to know. I need to know that there's going to be a break on the horizon. Exercise is another big one for me and, and as is therapy. And I was going to thank you for your vulnerability uh, mm -hmm. because I do think it's so important to normalize that. And oftentimes people think of trauma as, well, I don't have trauma. I didn't witness a murder or I wasn't you know, mm -hmm. abused as a child, but it doesn't all have to be big T trauma. It's little right. T trauma, the daily accumulation of witnessing hard things and that stuff builds up and it, it really can take you down mm -hmm. if you don't deal with it in the right way. And fortunately there are um, professionals out there who, can help us deal with mm -hmm. that stuff and, and clear it up. And boy, night and day difference when you work through something that you may not have even known was weighing you down to begin with. But yeah, and it is so important to work on that. And so thank you for your vulnerability. I do appreciate well, that. Well, one thing I just want to add to that is, you know, in healthcare, we're not really encouraged, believe it or not. Like it's not, you know, the, the need is so great for staffing, especially now that I've had administrators, I'm like, you need to take a break. And they're like, I can't, like, there's nobody else here to do it. Mm -hmm. And so then what ends up happening is they, they end up quitting or they end up leaving the industry altogether. And to be, to be honest, when I was taking my month break, I was thinking like, do I want to continue doing this? Like, is this, is this what I, is this, I mean, this is really, this is tough. Mm -hmm. And, but give me a little bit of time off. And I, I was, I was better, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. so we need that time off to, to rejuvenate and to, you know, get and And unfortunately, I think that's why we're seeing a lot of staff turnovers. People just haven't had any time to heal. And yeah, when you're seeing people die from this virus, it is traumatic. Like this is not, this is big T. I, you know, I call it big T because when you see, you know, like this facility I was working with on Friday, they have 40 residents sick with COVID right now. Like that's, mm. that's huge. Yeah. You know, um, we need, we need help with that stuff. So I, I definitely am an advocate for that as well. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever shared this on the, on the podcast before, but 
but really that what you just described was the genesis of this podcast i i work on the fringes of healthcare i don't know if you know what i do but i'm an elder law attorney and so mm -hmm. all, all my clients are in skilled nursing facilities trying to find ways to pay for that care and and i was i was suffering burnout it, it mm -hmm. nothing i wasn't getting joy from my job anymore i knew i was helping people just the same but the joy was gone and it it became oh i have to do this again and and i'm and it was it was hard and i then i thought to myself if i'm feeling this way just on the outskirts of healthcare imagine how those people who are feel how those people feel who are really in the trenches you know day in and day, right. day out um you know in the skilled nursing facilities and, and and so i started this podcast as as a way to help people stave off burnout it was I'd bring administrators on and I'd talk to them about what's going on in their particular facility. And then I'd have them share ways that they took care of themselves. So hopefully to share that information with others, um, you know, similarly situated who needed suggestions on how to help their mental health, improve their mental health so that they could uh, perhaps not burn out in a time when mm -hmm. their services are 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 so 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 needed uh, mm -hmm. yeah so thank you for those words of wisdom um before we adjourn here uh two kind of open-ended ended questions one um any imparting words of wisdom or suggestions to just the folks who you know are my listeners um and two uh, how can people either you know connect with you for i know you do some consulting and some speaking and mm -hmm. stuff like this so how can people connect with you or uh, find broken or you know you go ahead and plug anything you want this is your time <laughs> Well, um, so Broken is on Amazon and we did make um, Amazon bestseller in three categories last week, which I'm still, I'm very proud of. As you should. So um, you can um, get, it's on the ebook, the paperback and hard book, hardbound are all on Amazon. And um, you can also be, you can reach me, um, you can contact me, um, you can go to my website, IPCWell and um, find out more information about what we're doing and um, how we can support you and, and help you as well. I, you know, I, I just final comments, you know, it just really is my, my prayer and hope that, that people do get involved. Um, I have a real plea towards policymakers at this time to listen to those of us who have been on the front lines, who have been in the buildings, who know the truth of what's going on and, and to start creating policies and changes that, that will affect change, not just throwing the old stuff at, you know, the, the same, you know, new problem here. So um, we, we really need to listen to the people that have been on the front lines and, and to, so we can make lasting um, change. Absolutely. Dr. Buffy, it has been a delight. I have learned a lot. You are a <laughs> wealth of knowledge and um, a beautiful person, I can tell. So thank you so much. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you. It's been my pleasure. Take care. You've been listening to the Well Beings Podcast. Tune in every Thursday to hear the latest episode. 
And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. As always, thank you so much for listening.